Welcome to Hope Through the Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. I'm Steve Norman with Winning at Home. Welcome to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. My guest today is Dr. Chuck DeGroote. He's a professor at Western Theological Seminary, a clinical therapist, and author of multiple books, but the recent book is uh, When Narcissism Comes to Church. Chuck, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Chuck, tell me just a little bit about your kind of faith story. Where did it kind of gain its impetus, and, mm. and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, so I grew up on Long Island, New York. My mom and dad weren't Christians. They were married in 1956. I came along in 1970, their first child. Okay. They had had some marriage problems. In 70, when I was born, they said, we ought to go to church. And so they got me to church, got me baptized in a Lutheran church. And that was a really formative experience for me, uh, growing up in that church on Long Island, going to vacation Bible schools. My dad was a pretty active part of that church. So I'm one of those people who would say, you know, I've never known a a day uh, in my life without knowing Jesus. Uh, But I I do think in college, you know, in college where you, you face some of the big existential crises and questions and stuff like that, I think more intentionally committed my life to Jesus. Sure. And and felt a call to ministry growing in me, which we eventually pursued in the mid-1990s when I went to seminary. So that ministry journey has taken a couple different iterations. Yeah. What, what, what do those chapters look like for you, Chuck? How long do you have? I mean, <laughs> chapter one was uh, Chuck knows all the answers. He, he's That's in a great seminary. chapter. Um, he can answer all the questions. He thinks he knows his theology inside and out. Midway through seminary, a uh, professor of counseling and says, if you continue on this journey, you'll be dangerous, um, probably to your wife already, but you'll be dangerous to the church, maybe even dangerous to yourself. And that was a big turning point for me. He actually encouraged me to get counseling, to do the counseling program at the seminary. At the time, I was thinking about doing doctoral work. So not going in that direction and doing this extra two years, doing this clinical work, getting lots and lots of feedback about how I show up family of origin stuff, you know, deconstructing my story was really important for me, for my marriage. I spent six years in pastoral ministry after that, uh, started a counseling center in Orlando, served on a pastoral staff, and then had another detour where I, uh, for a little while, I was a clinical therapist. I, I participated in a couple of church plants. Uh, during that time, I was teaching at a seminary part-time, really enjoyed that. But then I was called out to a church in San Francisco. And so we loaded up the family, made the trek out west, found ourselves on staff at a church for five years uh, in San Francisco where I started another counseling center and uh, served on the church staff. Found ourselves called to West Michigan and uh, Western Theological Seminary. So I can say a whole lot more about all the particulars of that, but it's been a journey in two cross-country moves. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you've had, you've had quite, quite a trek that has brought yeah. you to this point. Yeah, my daughters will remind me of, that it's been quite a trek uh, with that, the, the two cross-country moves. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. I only had one cross-state move, and my daughters are reminding me about that mm-hmm. on a semi-regular mm-hmm. basis. So I yeah. feel a measure you of, know of your pain. You know it. <laughs> Chuck, it was probably a couple of years ago when you and I had mutual friends that convened a, a gathering of local church leaders to hear you talk about some of the factors that can derail mm-hmm. uh, ministries, families, uh, leadership cultures. Yeah. 
And I still am immensely grateful for the input that you shared with me and the rest of the group that was gathered then. That was before your book came out. Tell us about the book. What was the driving push for you to be able to say, I think this content needs to come out and I think it needs to come out now? Um, It wasn't a book I wanted to write. Um, It was a book that I was asked to write by pastors to be honest. Uh, I had been doing some consulting uh, with a larger church and had walked that church through a process that eventually led to the termination of their lead pastor and founding church planter. It was a really painful situation. It was about a six-month process that I had led them through, and a number of the pastors on that staff came to me afterwards and said it would have been really helpful to have a, a concise book that sort of defined what we were going through, some of the relational dynamics, name narcissism, name the different faces of narcissism, uh, how it shows up in systems. I said, that's great. Someone else should write that book. And they said, no, we really think you ought to write that. What I often say, I I think I wrote most of it in Ferris Coffee on 8th Street. You know that place. Sure, yeah. It wasn't necessarily a hard book to write because I I knew the material. I sort of knew the landscape. It wasn't a joyful book to write. It didn't come out of the depths of my own heart. As I thought about my own story, the stories of others, in contact with a lot of pastors across the United States, there was grief throughout the process of of writing. Like, man, why are we even talking about this? Why do I have to write about this? Uh, Why is this such an issue? The book came out right at the beginning of COVID-19. I had some things lined up and was going to talk about this at a variety of different churches and then uh, then COVID. And so, you know, I was talking about this epidemic of narcissism in the beginning of a pandemic, I often say. Yeah. (laughs) Chuck, how have people responded to the book? What have been some of the surprises? I think in the beginning, I expected uh, harder pushback. I mean, I think I expected some criticism. And uh, by and large, have not received a ton of criticism. Um, I, I think on the one hand, I expected pastors to say, "Why are you? Why are you crushing us like this? Like you were a pastor, Chuck. You should know better." Sure. And I think by and large, what pastors are saying is, "You were you were honest, but you were also kind. You sort of named the landscape, uh, but you you didn't write off the church. You didn't write off pastors. You didn't contribute to the cynicism." I think on the other side, I expected people in the survivor community to say, you didn't go far enough. Mm. Um, and by and large, they've said, thank you for speaking so clearly. Thank you for naming the dynamics. Um, and, and so what I've been able to receive from that is the book is, is broad enough. It speaks to the various sort of audiences that I wanted to speak to. I'm just surprised that people are are liking it, finding it a helpful resource. In the same year, a number of other books, similar topics came out. Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger wrote a book. Uh, Diane Langberg wrote a book. Wade Mullen. And so I think collectively we've contributed to a conversation without demonizing the church, without throwing pastors under the bus, but really honoring the vocation of pastor, naming some hard things. What is it about this unique cultural moment that we're in, Chuck, that you think is allowing this theme to hit a nerve? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's been an emerging cultural moment. I remember even back in the 90s when uh, when I was a young pastor, uh, there were a number of conversations around sort of a coming reckoning in the church. I remember mm. Mike Regale wrote a book called The Death of the Church. Okay. Pretty ominous. Sure. Um, but he was naming, he was seeing down the, the road in terms of some of the political stuff, the polarization, uh, other issues with the rise of social media, 
victims and survivors of uh, clergy abuse, pastoral malpractice, having a megaphone, <laughs> you know, through Twitter and Facebook and other social media sources. I think that's part of the cultural moment right now. When, when we look at Me Too and we look at Church Too, victims, survivors of abuse were able to, to name things that had happened to them. Now, as a result of that, there was some follow-up. Churches had to take it seriously. I think one of the, the big ones and one of the really painful ones for those of us, this neck of the woods is, is Willow Creek. Sure. But, you know, a, a number of women coming together, highly credible women saying, we have stories to tell. I think that's just, that's kind of, that couldn't have happened 20 years ago without social media. And I have all kinds of problems with social media, but it has allowed a conversation to take place and for people to name some of the things that have happened to them. Chuck, one of the things I appreciate about the book is, as I grew up in a ministry environment in, in my kind of seminary years and my Christian undergrad years, prevailing sense was the only two things that could disqualify a pastor was like kind of skimming off the top, you know, stealing mm-hmm. money from the church mm-hmm. or having an affair with the secretary. And like yeah. that was it. Yeah. And, and what I love about what you have addressed is to be able to say narcissism can take a lot of different forms yeah. and it and it's not unique to yeah. mega churches and celebrity yeah. pastors. Yeah, that's right. The larger conversation is a conversation about character. When I think back to my seminary education, training, formation, we didn't talk a lot about character. We made sure we had all of our theological T's crossed and I's dotted, that we passed ordination exams, but there wasn't a whole lot about character, emotional health, emotional intelligence, things like that. I think in naming the different faces of narcissism and how narcissism shows up in the church, basically naming sin patterns, relational patterns, and I'm naming myself in it too, by the way. People say, well, you know, it's so great that, you know, someone so healthy can write a book like this. And I'm like, well, you don't know me very well. You've got to know your own grandiosity. You've got to know your own shame uh, to write on these things. But what I've seen over the course of 25 years or so of ministry and, and being involved in lots of assessments and church planning assessments is that there are these particular kinds of relational patterns that we baptize um, he's charismatic, he's, sure. uh, he's inspiring, he's an influencer, he's a great communicator. And we think, wow, that's, that's a recipe for a successful church plant without asking, what's fueling that? Might there be a, a larger story? Um, and I, I'm the guy, by the way, in those church planting assessments who always raises the yellow flag and says, can we ask a few more questions? Can yeah. we get to know him a little bit better? I don't happen to think that confidence uh, inspiration, things like that are uh, disqualifying at all. Um, I do happen to think that when they're fueled by um, deep-seated issues of shame, family of origin stuff, abuse, when they become, uh, to use a big word, compensatory ways of relating in the world, narcissism is a personality disorder. It's a, a way of compensating, a compensatory way of relating, a false self that we wear, a mask that we wear in the world. When, when these ways of showing up become dangerous, when grandiosity becomes our way of dominating staff meetings and conversations because we're just too afraid to be wrong, well, that's a problem. And that's why we need to kind of tease out the dynamics of narcissism among pastors. Chuck, in the book, you're really careful to make the distinction between a a bona fide narcissist personality disorder diagnosis and more more generic narcissistic behavior patterns. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, and that's what I was just hinting at, because when I do my my testing, my assessment and testing and stuff like that, people are placed on a spectrum. Just because you have uh, narcissistic tendencies doesn't mean you're narcissistic personality disorder. Okay. And I will have these hard conversations with future church planters, right, to say, hey, 
there was an elevation on the narcissistic spectrum. And immediately there's a sense of, oh, no, <laughs> you know, here we go. No, that, that's okay. Let's talk a little bit about that. Just to tease this out a little bit, when I see someone with narcissistic personality disorder, I generally see someone who is well defended. Let's say that I've done an assessment and they've tested as NPD and I bring that up. Generally, there's this sense of, oh, you psychologists, all you want to do is you know, blow up the church and sure. destroy pastors and I'm just fine. I'm healthy. I'm just confident. You don't like confident people. And there's a difference, though, between those who'll say, hey, I'm really curious about that, Chuck. I'm really curious that you mentioned that I'm on the narcissistic spectrum because I've always suspected that I've had a little bit of narcissism. Can we talk about that more? Do, do you suggest I get some therapy? How should I move forward in terms of my own health and maturity? That's a very different kind of way of showing up than the defensiveness that I see in someone with narcissistic personality disorder. Narcissistic tendencies, by the way, may just mean that someone is able to do things that the average person doesn't do. I mean, think about the person who gets up on a large stage and says, this is the word of the Lord, right? That takes a little chutzpah, as we, right. we used to say on Long Island growing up. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me about, for many people, the verbiage of church trauma mm. is new. Yeah. And I think that some of us, myself included, sometimes hesitate to say like, oh, I've experienced a church trauma because our definitions of trauma are, mm. I'm, not, I'm not a refugee or I haven't experienced yeah. personal violence or sexual violence against yeah. me. How are you using that term? And how might some people acknowledge that church trauma has been part of their story where they might not have been aware of it before? Those are always really subjective conversations, okay. right? When I sit down with folks uh, and we begin to tease these things out, oftentimes it begins with, I, I don't think anything happened. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong, but there's maybe a gut sense of, but there, this happened, or there's this interaction with the senior pastor. Or there, oftentimes with trauma, we're not immediately aware. And that's sort of the nature of trauma. Trauma happens in our bodies because as something really hard happened in our lives, maybe abuse, gaslighting, clergy malpractice, whatever it was in the context of the church or some other occasion, we didn't have anyone to process it with. And so it often takes some time sitting down with a therapist, sitting down with a good friend, a spiritual director, beginning to process your story before you become aware of really experiencing or what you feel. Sitting down with someone who says, I'm not really sure that I experienced much pain during my time on that staff, but six months later, eight months later, as we begin to tease out how different conversations unfolded or how staff meetings went, she begins to say, you know, what, I, what I'm beginning to realize is that on every occasion he belittled me. And I, mm. I never realized it at the time. I, I wonder why I, I didn't realize that. Well, maybe it's because your dad was abusive. or sure. we, we therapists, we have to tease these things out. Not, by the way, for the sake of, of trying to destroy a pastor, find that smoking gun, but to honor people's stories to honor uh, their experiences. Um, so it takes some time and it's very subjective. It's fascinating to hear you say that because sometimes you'll hear people are on the who may have been offenders who mm -hmm. are kind of self-protecting say, well, it wasn't an issue six months ago when they worked here. Right. How is it magically an issue now? Right. And right. it seems like this one person or this group of people have you know, providentially or creatively stumbled yeah. across some version of revisionist history. And oftentimes when you're in a relationship like that, you're on a church staff that might be toxic, you're looking for the good. There's this thing called Stockholm syndrome, sure. right? This idea that, well, you're in a toxic relationship, but you don't know it. You're just trying to survive. And our bodies are really good at surviving. Trauma is, is a kind of survival response, right? 
And so we can navigate our way through difficult situations for a, for a length of time, for six months, for a year, for 10 years, before we begin to realize that those symptoms that we have, those headaches that don't go away, um, that sleeplessness at night, that reactivity in our marriage, um, that may have something to do with something I experienced in that other relationship while I was on that church staff. Slowly, those of us who do this kind of work tease that out with people. Uh, tell me a bit more about that. You know, what does it feel like in your body as you recount that story? It takes some time and it takes a lot of patience. And those of us who do this work know that it requires a lot of patience and a lot of trust um, as people reckon with the, the reality of their stories. Reading your book was incredibly cathartic for me personally. We have served in local churches for over two decades. Yeah. And when you're young, you, you want to be a dutiful soldier. You want to be a representative yeah. of the yeah. gospel and you want to, you want to play nice. And so sometimes there were lines that were like, yeah. oh, why are you so divisive? And yeah. why can't you fall in yeah. line? Or yeah. this spirit that we're getting from you is unteachable and combative. And don't get me wrong. Like I have my own narcissistic tendencies <laughs> yeah, right. and, and, and 80% of the time they met, they were probably yeah. right. Yeah. But there were some other times where you're just, you really were trying to act in the best interest of the body yeah. and raise a, a flag of concern. Mm -hmm. And to have it just get bulldozed was, uh, yeah. you didn't realize how harmful that was until yeah. you were on the other side of it. Yeah. And oftentimes in organizations, uh, it's it's when you begin to realize that any time I brought a concern, it was met with defensiveness. It's, it's, it's beginning to reckon with, well, that happened over the course of five years or 10 years. To get back to the previous question, Maybe it was a, a toxic environment. Maybe it was a harmful environment. I mean, when I think about healthy organizations, healthy environments, staff members can bring concerns uh, and there can be an atmosphere of honesty, maybe some reckoning with what really has gone on, getting beneath the surface to, to understand some of the more complexities of relationships. But in, in narcissistic environments, there's almost always defensiveness. And so mm -hmm. people aren't willing to enter in and I think that's, that's what's tricky for people. Um, I think oftentimes in Christian organizations in particular, uh, the people I work with give the leaders the benefit of the doubt because they're talented. He's preached all over the world. He's got 13 books out. He can't be harmful. Right. And yet, when I look at my conversations with him over the last 10 years, almost at every turn, he looks for an opportunity to diminish me, um, to mm -hmm. bully me, to... Um, to minimize me, to mock me. Okay, so how do I reconcile those two things? And you can kind of begin to see that for survivors of this kind of abuse, it is often a slow road to awakening to what has really happened. They may take some criticism along the way, like you didn't say that six months ago, you didn't report that three years ago. When we did our 360 five years ago, you said glowing things about the right. church. How right. come you're saying this now? Yeah. Again, I'm grateful for the writing. And then you and I, before we started this conversation, we're mentioning the podcast that you've been quoted on, right. the, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And I think that I've been debriefing both your book and that show with the inner circle of friends. And the, the line that just keeps mm -hmm. coming up is, I'm not crazy mm -hmm. and I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that a sentiment that you're hearing from other corners? I mean, I think that, that that's the core of it. When I think about the work, when I think about the, the moments when I'm sitting with someone and we're kind of deconstructing their experience uh, within a church uh, staff or a, a larger organization, that moment where, where she says, maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe, maybe all these things that I was kind of telling myself late at night that I, I convinced myself were off, maybe I, I was seeing something. That's a pretty profound moment for someone yeah. that, that I'm not alone. 
that I'm not crazy. Those, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Those are really important moments, validating moments, clarifying moments. Now, there's a lot more work to do after that with someone who's been through uh, the pain of abuse, that has experienced some trauma. But I think that, that that's often one of those those moments where, you know, particularly when you feel seen, you know, you're sitting in the context of a counseling relationship, spiritual direction with another pastor, and you feel seen, someone is sitting across from you and says, I believe you. That's a really big moment yeah. for someone. Yeah. yeah. It seems that for some people, this whole theme of power dynamics being abused was mm-hmm. was starting to surface over these last three, four, five years. Mm-hmm. Then COVID hits. Yeah. How are these factors interplaying with one another? Because from my own experience, mm. it seems like some people are like, wow, I can acknowledge that I experienced deep church hurt. Mm. Also, I'm not allowed to publicly gather anywhere anyway. Yeah. If, I, if I become deeply disillusioned with the church while public gatherings are being shut down, yeah. it seems like that could be a really convenient off ramp to any form yeah. of formal spiritual community for yeah. a large subset of the population. Yeah. I think that there have been a growing number of off-ramps over the last three, four, five years. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, even back in the late 90s, people beginning to talk about some of the cultural dynamics, um, some of the other sort of converging dynamics that might lead to a kind of reckoning. Some of us are calling a reckoning with the church. Um, Phyllis Tickle wrote a book about 12 years ago, I think now called The Great Emergence, where she says that about every five years within the history of the church, there there's a moment of... Uh, emergence, disruption and emergence. In other okay. words, there's there's a, a dying and a rising. That sounds familiar, right? Oh, yeah. um, and that that uh, institutional Christianity, the church, has become a little bit too crusty, a little too sure of itself. Sure. And so there's a there's a kind of reckoning with with that uh, with that certainty, with that surety. And I think we're we're in a moment like that right now. I think COVID is contributing to that. It's given people that convenient off-ramp, but it's actually, in my experience, given people some time to step away and say, so what just happened? Yeah. And it took actually stepping away from the church for me to see that what I was experiencing week in, week out, because I felt that obligatory need to go to church right. was, was actually harmful to me. It took me being on Zoom calls to see that being in the room with that lead pastor was actually harmful to me. And again, I realized, I want to say this clearly, we're talking about all the negatives, right? Sure. Because we're in a season of reckoning, some degree of deconstruction. I also believe as these cultural moments emerge, occur, as these disruptions occur, if they are every 500 years, I think there are many disruptions along the way. I also think Jesus is Lord. And I think Absolutely. that, you know, if Jesus has died and has risen, if the church has gone through seasons of dying and rising again, we might be navigating a moment where you, me, others of us who do this kind of work are, are stewarding people through a kind of wilderness season in the yeah. church. Yeah, yeah. Not to say church is bad and everything about church forever and ever and ever is going to be bad so that the church can uh, go through a process of confession, repentance, reformation, and be renewed again. And and that's my hope in this. Mm-hmm. Chuck, for families who are listening who either because of COVID or because of church hurt have found themselves just kind of drifting, mm-hmm. <laughs> what could we hang on to either as a tether or as a compass that yeah. says, all right, it's okay to take a season to heal, but I, I don't want to let go. Because yeah. many of the people that I'm talking with, they're like, I, I'm 
as devoted to Jesus as I've ever been. Yeah. I'm engaging the practices. I'm engaging disciplines. I have different forms of community. Mm-hmm. I'm not walking away. Yeah. But having some space has been really disorienting, yeah. but then also cathartic. Yeah. Yeah, I think a few things come to mind as I, as I think about that. W- one is that people are finding their way to conversations with therapists like me to, sure. to talk honestly about w- what's gone on. Uh, what am I feeling? What am I experiencing? Now I'm talking to a lot of therapists who are themselves are really tired because they absorbed a lot over yeah. this last season. Absolutely. And uh, I found myself now oftentimes pastor to pastors. Now I'm therapist to therapist, kind of finding myself navigating so what do you need to do to take care of yourselves? Anyway, that's one thing. Those kinds of one-on-one relationships where you're honest. I think a, a second piece um, has been in smaller groups, people are finding their way to, to community, maybe more honest communities sitting around the table, people relatively safe confines and environments, even in the midst of a pandemic where they can have conversations and name their longings, um, yeah. name their pain, but also name their longings for for church, for authentic community. Sometimes that means walking through a book or maybe just reading scripture together, or maybe just kind of joining together in prayer. But I think another thing that I'm hearing from folks is they're they're finding their way to people who are prophets in this season. I'm thinking of one in particular, uh, and that's Beth Moore, who sure. has, she hasn't found her voice in this. She obviously but had a voice, but it. she's leveraging yeah. her voice as she's reckoning with some of the the harm in the SBC, some of what she's experienced as a woman, and she's naming some of those things in in, a, in ways that uh, are really honest. She's not seeking to kind of blow the whole thing up. Like yeah, she's, yeah. she's saying, so how, how do we move forward well and wisely? And so I think people are finding their way to podcasts, like people like Beth Moore, podcasts like The Rise and Fall to say, okay, so there is something going on uh, what I experience isn't an isolated incident. I'm not crazy. This reckoning seems to be happening not just in one church, but in lots of churches all over the place. I mean, after my book came out, I started getting calls from literally all over the place, including overseas, Europe, wow. England, right? Pastors, presbyteries, dioceses, all calling to say, help. Like, what do we do? And so we now know pretty universal problem it's going to be hard for a season. It's going to be really hard. And we're going to have to have some really hard conversations along the way. But if we steward this well, if we steward the dying well, I think that there's a rising on the other side. That may take a while. That's my hope. How do the institutions and the networks that are training and mobilizing people for ministry, how, how do they add this new perspective to their <laughs> To their toolbox. Because to yeah. your point, I also am a product that says like, right doctrine, right doctrine, yeah, right doctrine. Like yeah. if you can get right doctrine and you can like string a couple sentences together in front of a microphone, we can cut you loose. Yeah. But you're saying, hey, we know plenty of people who checked doctrinal yeah. boxes with 100% accuracy who were toxic mm-hmm. and hostile and yeah. caused a lot of damage. Yeah. Yeah. So for a long time, I, I helped start a, a West Coast seminary that w- we were really seeking to sort of form church planters and people in mission. I moved on to Western. And for a long time, I, I was saying that seminaries are answering questions that people aren't asking in the wow. pews, right? I find the seminary that I'm at, we're trying to do it a little bit differently, but now there's a steep learning curve. I mean, demographics are changing dramatically, um, not just because of COVID, but because of Church Two and Me Too. Those of us who are involved in forming pastors, theological education, formation schools, and things like that, 
are asking really big questions. I'm asking myself, do I need to move on? Do we need to get someone else in who maybe has more resources to do this um, and can engage students in a better way? I mean, I think we're all kind of building the plane as we're flying it. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is if you think about a seminary, I mean, the way seminary is crafted and constructed, it was basically the model that has been around for like the last two or 300 years, right, with the kinds of academic divisions and emphases and things like that. And so we're really needing to ask some big questions about how we form people. I think that's going to be an ongoing question for the next five years or else theological schools and seminaries are going to become completely irrelevant. Wow. That's a timely uh, observation. Mm -hmm. Chuck, near the end of the book, you talk about a particular pastor that uh, a group of people had asked you to work with, and you're trying to coach him towards a new level of awareness. And you Mm -hmm. gave him a question that was ended up being kind of pivotal in his ability to gauge how other people were engaging him. Tell that story and and how that might be a resource, not just for pastors, but for parents and business leaders as well. I think the question is, how do you experience me? Right? Yeah. I've coached people to ask this question in a variety of different contexts and environments, not just pastors, but CEOs that I counsel and coach and leaders in various different businesses and so forth. I think in marriages and relationships in general, asking the question, how do you experience me is so important. For me, it goes back to, I'll do this quickly, but it goes back to 1997 and entering into that counseling program as a male student in a female-dominated program and a number of women saying, oh my goodness, Chuck DeGroat's in the program now. This isn't a safe program any longer. Mm. And a supervisor coaching me to to say, so why don't you just get curious instead of being so defensive, Chuck? (laughs) Why don't you just get curious and ask them how they've observed you around campus? What do they know about you? How do they experience you? And I got the courage to ask that question. And it was really hard. It was about an hour-long conversation with a group of women who used words like arrogant, entitled, obnoxious. I mean, words that you'd find in a definition of narcissism, by the way, I'd say. Well, that led to, for me, humiliation, which led to humility, I think, and led to a whole lot more curiosity. And then I made that question a part of my regular practice and ministry. And so in different places where I've led, teams, uh, if I've got folks working for me, I'll say, you're invited to, to come to me at any point and ask that question or answer that question for sure, me, right? right, right. But I'm going to ask you that question too um, yeah. in our one-on-ones. Um, I want to make sure that that's an ongoing dialogue. Even now as I'm a professor at a seminary, I've had students come to me. I often tell the story of a student who came to me and said, hey, Chuck, you know, you're the guy who talks a lot about presence and slowing down, really listening. And I've been trying to get your attention for about the last two months. And you, your body races across the atrium of the seminary at about 60 miles an hour, calling out to you. You don't answer. You go up to your office. You close the door. Mm. You, I don't experience you as very present right now. Wow. And so my response is, tell me more. Um, how did that impact you? Tell me more about what that felt like. That's kind of all we can do as leaders, right, is invite people into the conversation. But you're right, that carries weight in every single relational dynamic, whether it's parenting, whether it's friendship, whether it's marriage. Let's say, for example, that there's somebody who does feel closed off and their gut instinct is to be defensive. What what is the bridge that takes somebody from that initial kind of armoring up mentality towards the curiosity that says, all right, I'm, I'm ready to ask the question and present myself in such a way that people believe that I'm sincere? 
Yeah, it's tough because that defensiveness is there for a reason, right? I, I mean, yeah. and, and it's different in, in everyone. I used to see defense, people's defenses as something to blow through, you know? Okay. Now I'm a whole lot more curious about it. I'm not at all interested in blowing through people's defenses. I, I am interested in, let's just say I'm having a conversation with a pastor and he's like, oh, goodness, here's the narcissism writer guy, yeah, yeah. you know, and he's, he's going to blow me over and call me a narcissist. And I get a bit of defensiveness from him. I want to get to know a story. I want to get to know, like, so, so why is it that in, in ministry for you, you've had to put up some walls? I know ministry is hard. I was a pastor in Orlando and San Francisco. I've been ghosted. I've experienced all kinds of pain. Tell me about that. And once there's some trust develop, for most people, there's a capacity to say, yeah, I feel defensive because, frankly, I've been hurt. I've been betrayed. I've been ghosted in ministry. Uh, I had people who, uh, whose babies I baptized uh, leave three weeks later. You know, I, I've had all those kinds of things happen. So you know it. That You bet I'm defensive. Okay. Yeah, I get that. So I really want to honor defenses when I see them, knowing that they're there for a reason, probably because of someone's trauma. So it's important for the person who is acting in a manner that is narcissistic to express curiosity, but it's also possible for people who care about restoration and reconciliation on the other side to be able to not just blacklist, demonize, write that person off to be able to say like, oh, there's a backstory there. If only I have ears to hear it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, curiosity and humility are the, have become the two most important words for me and dispositions, I think, in this work. And my invitation to pastors, uh, and, th- and this takes time, right, because we all have our stories. We all have our defenses, is to become men and women who are more curious, able to show up with greater humility. Say, how did I impact you? How did you experience me? How do my defenses show up uh, when we're in meetings together? Tell me more about uh, what you see in me. If we could begin to do that, just imagine what the church could be. That's great. Yeah. Chuck, if you had one word of encouragement or wisdom for somebody who is experiencing church trauma, even as they listen to this, what might that be? If they have experienced some form of church trauma in their body, they feel unsafe. Uh, There's a great book out by Bessel van der Kolk. You you know it, I'm sure. The Body Keeps the Score. Mm Um, Our bodies give us really important information. Um, Our bodies perceive things sometimes that our minds don't perceive, right? We don't see immediately. There's probably some sense that I don't feel safe. I don't feel secure. I'm not sure why. Maybe I can't put words to it, but I don't feel safe. My counsel would be find someone you can talk to. Find someone safe. Um, Maybe that's a therapist. Maybe that's a spiritual director. Maybe that's a coach. Maybe that's your old pastor from a different church. Maybe that's your best friend from years ago. Whatever it might be, find someone you can talk to. Find someone who's relatively safe to tell your story to. We need to move toward one another in relationship. And trauma, by the way, um, can never be healed um, in isolation. It always takes relationship. It always takes knowing and being known for healing to take place. That's great. Chuck, thank you so much for the book. Thanks for your time. Thanks for sharing your insights with us here today. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.